And I think the longer I'm in this business, I realize that it is what you sell and whether you do a good job of selling that idea that makes a difference. Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we talk to founders, investors, and entrepreneurs shaping and impacting the Asia startup ecosystem. Today, we're talking with Renyi Chin, co-founder of Burger Lab, a very famous burger chain here in Kuala Lumpur. Renyi has become a friend who I was able to meet by going on some social outings with the Good Food Alliance a collective of some of the most innovative F&B entrepreneurs here in Malaysia. This episode is a nice complement to episode 7, which covers fine dining in the context of entrepreneurship. With Renyi, we expand the conversation to innovation in fast food, scaling culture, being hospitality-oriented, and the future of F&B. Lastly, we cover Burger Lab's expansion plans, which I personally think will grow globally in the next 5-10 to 10 years, just like Shake Shack did. Lastly, we end on a very deep topic of difficult conversations. Let's dive right in. Renyi, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So Renyi, you're co-founder of Burger Lab. Yes, that's right. Uh, I guess probably better to say at this point, uh, you have a holdings group for all your businesses or is everything under Burger Lab? Um, everything is under one company. Yeah. yeah. So it's technically, I guess, co-founder of a, a budgeting uh, food empire. Well, I, I wouldn't put it <laughs> as far as that, but thanks for the compliment. Because under there, you have uh, Pizza Lab. Yes. Uh, Taco Lab still around? Taco Lab is, is has always been a pop up uh, uh, okay. project. Uh, it's never been something too serious. We just want to just stick around with something while we were bored. And then uh, Bobo Lab, which recently shut down. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, the one I'm most excited about is uh, Banmi, which unfortunately is is also on hold. It's on hold, okay, yeah. <laughs> because of what's happened. And also what I'm also excited about the ninety percent project. <laughs> Yes, there is that, uh, which is also on hold. <laughs> the thing is, I've been doing too many things. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's on hold. It's just not as fast as we want it to be because uh, this actually comprises of me and Hong, mm. and both of us are busy individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, Hong for Ban Mi, right? And Ban Mi as well. Yeah. 90% is also Hong. Oh, 90% is also Hong. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So you guys are doing a lot of collaborations. We, I'm not too sure if this is collaboration. It's just a bunch of drunk guys deciding to come together to yeah. do work. And then when the sober self... Realize that there's work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's not much work done. So to, to be clear, um, Hong or Ahong is uh, one of the members of the Great Food Alliance. Yes. Right, good. which is uh, what you formed well, probably back in what, 2012, 2013? Years yeah, after around that? There, around there? Yeah. yeah. And I remember when I first saw you speaking at a uh, pinch of salt, right? Yes. Uh, that's uh, your monthly get together where you hold talks to kind of. It- Basically, build it's, food community. It's not really a monthly activity. I try to do it. Used, well, used to goal, be right. <laughs> yeah. The, well, actually, the goal was uh, six talks a, a year, and then on some years we get lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Which, but that's okay. I think the the group has grown quite a lot. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to be, uh, you know, somewhat of an insider because of Sabrina and you know, Amazing Grace being a part of the group, um, and you know, I, I've learned a lot from that. So I was doing a lot of research, and I saw you actually have a lot of coverage already you know. I think your story at this point is very well known in the last couple of months yes yes uh, more than ever yeah so like podcasts seem to be exploding um, and you've happened to get on at least four at this point I think right so uh, you did one with uh, so I'm gonna give some plugs to, uh, and I, I don't really know these guys so uh, one was with the just the guru show of Justin yes uh, how do you know Justin he reached out to me okay he just reached out to you so you don't really know him no no uh, no not, not close yeah I, but honestly I think that was probably one of the better ones because uh, he allowed you to really speak, right? And um, another one you did was with uh, Small Talk Big Ideas. 
honestly, I mean, no offense to anyone. I don't remember <laughs> all the talks. <laughs> But I think they were your. Sound like they were your friends, though. Some, some are. Um, yeah. I don't. I know the name of the person behind it, but sometimes uh, I don't always know the name of the show. Okay. Uh, the um, thing is, while I have only done it to your research for for podcast, uh, there were a lot of Zoom meetings, presentations, yes, and yes, whatnot. Correct, correct. I easily can put it to up to 30 plus that I've done in the last three four months. Wow. So it's been a bit of a blur, and sometimes the topics is the same. It's the same. Yeah. Actually, yeah. to be honest, I would say 90% of them is the same. Uh, the one with the Guru Show was, I think, probably the nicest, nuanced version of your story. Mm-hmm. You could inject more detail. Whereas, like, you know, if I read your story in an article, it sounds very uh, kind of like not as you know, it's more it's more boring. Not really painting a story. So at this point, I think there's no point to rehash the story. If you really want to know the story, I'll just point you. I'll link those <laughs> uh, podcasts in the description. Right. Uh, so before I think we start this interview um, to determine if we should continue or not. Um, you spent some time in America, right? Uh, three summers. Yes. So, Shake Shack or In and Out? And uh, you have to pick one. Oh, well, here's the thing. Okay, so I, I have to be honest on on uh, how the accounts of things are. Um, we are inspired by both brands when we first started. However, In and Out was the only one that I have tried at that point. Into at oh, okay, uh, at that time. At, at that time. Ah. Uh, but even Shake Shack, I've not tried the original one in the states. I've tried oh, in Shanghai. Okay. I've tried in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, those are the two places. I've okay, um, and that's because you spent most of your time in Yellowstone West Coast. Well, yes, and uh, also because uh, being a cheap student, uh, after I finished my work and travel summer holiday, mm-hmm. uh, I only stuck to one side, which is the the West Coast. Indiana. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I've tried the one in Shanghai. So the the Shake Shack in Shanghai, I've tried, and I think this is a testament to Shake Shack and their ability to have consistency, uh, a testament to their culture, uh, the detail. Probably just you know a shout out to Danny Meyer in general, right? Like it does pretty much taste the same as the one in New York. So uh, I guess based off that, though, if you had to choose, well, are you talking about product? Or are you talking about brand love? Ooh, It's two different things. Ooh, okay, okay. Uh, I'm talking. Of, okay, my initial thought is as a consumer, so product. But I guess the brand also probably would influence it, no? Of of course it does. Yes. Uh, I I have great respect for both. I I love both brands. But I think uh, Shake Shack does a sleeker job of it. It's 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 to me it's like an apple of burgers. Mm. If, if that makes sense, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, In and Out feels like it's uh, a bit rough and tumble. It's a little bit. Uh, Just upgraded McDonald's in terms of branding, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of food, um, I actually what resonates with me more was actually In and Out. Mm. Yeah, but, but both serve a great cheeseburger. Um, yes. Not well. Un, un, unfortunately, I wouldn't say uh, it's the same as what I serve now. Yes. Uh, I think my burgers are better. Yeah, you evolved a lot. That's, that's yeah. because you know I uh, I'm geared towards a, a certain. Taste profile, which we design ourselves. Correct. Right. Yeah. Theirs are very pure, very clean, mm. um, which I think uh, has its own charm. Yeah. Right? On a good day, I want. Of course. That yes. And on, yes. On some days, I want my my Asian heritage. Yeah. I think you're bringing a very. And good I'm not trying to be diplomatic here. Just just disclaimer. I do like both brands. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, burgers, I will vote for In and Out. In terms of branding, I will vote for Shake Shack. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so, like, you bring up a very good point. Because I think what these two food giants, and they've only become giants in the past decade or so, right? Uh, what they've managed to do is to carve out a huge niche of higher quality burger, right? I think if you think of American culture, burger is very much part of the fabric of it, right? And uh, but 
what happened is that, you know, with the, the rise of fast food chains, it became very transactional, right? And so these guys just maybe injected something different. I think on the in and outside, you're right. It's probably more rougher, but it is a step up from, say, like McDonald's, right? Yes. And I think so. That's why a lot of people will compare Shake Shack and in and out. But the reality is, is it's not like the fairest comparison, right? Well, in reality, I think people just want something to compare to. True, yeah, good point. Good point. It is, it, why, why aren't they comparing to McDonald's? Why yes. Why aren't they comparing to Burger King? Because I think because they're both a step above, right? Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, I can agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but McDonald's have also stepped up in some places in the States where they're like, you know, no longer frozen. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, Burger King has that. done that as well. Burger King's done that too. I think a lot of it is actually marketing and branding. And I think the longer I'm in this business, I realize that it is what you sell and whether you do a good job of selling that idea that makes a difference. Yeah, and I think that's what Danny Meyer, I think he's probably the pioneer in the burgers in doing this, right? It's, and his, he, what he's very famous for, right, is, is his notions of hospitality. And how he was able to scale and keep the culture to ensure that hospi- level of hospitality, right? And, you know, um, you know, from the origin story of Union Square Cafe to a second restaurant, then finally Shake Shack, right? You know, he had a lot of reservations. I'm not going to hash the story. You know, if I, I would recommend you listen to Reed Hoffman's coverage of Masters of Scale. He did a very good interview and lessons with Danny Meyer. But honestly, like from, you know, just from a you know, human standpoint, you know, as, as I got to know you over the years, as we interacted, and also listening on the other podcasts, you know, you're, you're, you're a great human. You're also amazing at hospitality. Oh, you. you're, you're pretty much the, you're pretty much the Denny Myers of Southeast Asia, right? I, I don't dare say that. I'll, I'll be the De- uh, Denny Myers of PJ. Yeah. I, I can, I, okay. Sorry. It's, well, cause it's, I believe it's starting there. And I, I, I could see, you know, if you could continue this trend and, and I, the way you build your company and culture, uh, it depends if you want that or not, right? It's really up to you. I suspect there's a lot more underneath than you really reveal to people. Um, so, uh, but you know, that's why that's why I say that, and I'm going to call it early. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, I think that for Southeast Asia and you bring that to the scene in 2012, right? I think that's been one of your big competitive advantages. Thinking about human first hospitality, right? And like I just said earlier, um, what happened before that, right? The food scene of Southeast Asia was rich businessmen bringing in big franchises and big names. Well, yes, to that extent, that is true. But there is a predecessor to me. Uh, I mean, by, my, by me, I, I mean uh, the, the, the person you just portrayed or you just painted. Yeah. Um, that person to me is actually Benjamin Young mm. uh, of BIG Group. Ah, ben, that, that's a very good point. When I first came to Southeast Asia, uh, ben, yeah, he was really the one who kick-started the whole idea of high-end groceries. And well, then... Before groceries. It was also just restaurants, actually. Yes, right, restaurants. yes. Because right. I think his mother was the first one who brought the first Western restaurant in Bangsar, which was called... So his mother ran a, um, a boutique yeah. uh, at, at Bangsar Village, uh, yeah. I believe. And then, it's still around. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I think he opened up a kick shop that sold carrot cakes only. And I think it was called Delicious, and mm. Delicious bloomed into a restaurant. Yes. And then he, he, he was known for famously selling Delicious for a few million ringgit at that time. Yeah. And then uh, that's when he uh, started Plan B and, yes. and the likes, and then yes. he went into the supermarket game, which he is out of right now, and he's back in the restaurant game. Yes. Because, okay, yeah, so he, then he started the, the high-end groceries, and um, I found it very interesting, high-end groceries in Southeast Asia, because... Uh, if you go to like Singapore, 
It's probably the most developed country in Southeast Asia, but man, their grocery experience is just shitty. Really? Yes. Well, I haven't been, so I, I, I really have no comparison. Uh, you should go shopping in Singapore, and, and you'll see like there's no high-end concept. It's just like, I don't know what they have on the West Coast, but it's, it's really just like a normal supermarket uh, where you just go. It's very functional, right? But then you go somewhere like Bangkok, which is probably one of the best in Southeast Asia. The groceries are just, it's an experience, mm-hmm. right? And I think- In terms of choices, yes, quality. And, and I guess that's what uh, Benjamin Yang, right? That's what he brought to, to Malaysia for groceries. Yeah, right? I, I think you can say that. But again, I don't think he was, I, I'm not too sure if he wants to be accredited accredited to, to high-end grocery. Yeah, he, he um, wanted the food, right? Yeah. But I think cold storage to me was, was the one that was a step up and then came the guys like Village uh, Grocer okay, uh, okay. And, and the likes. Uh, yeah. Ben definitely did, did, was part of that. Part of that, player. yes. Yeah, to credit him to that, uh, I'm not too sure if that's correct. But what I was trying to um, infer to was the fact that Benjamin was the one that inspired a new generation yes. of, of rest, restaurants like myself mm-hmm. where we said, hey, you know, not everything needs to be franchised. You can be Malaysian grown and still mm-hmm. be really big, pun intended, um, and and really make a mark. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where um, the, there was a wave of change. In Correct. the coffee world, they talk about third wave and so on and so forth. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think there was a wave in some form uh, among restaurateurs where they say, hey, we can take this to the next level. That's uh, You know, that's a very good point because um, I was talking with Chai and one of my questions is like, why don't we have Michelin star restaurants? But I guess it's it takes time, it takes layering. It, has or to, it takes the government to, to come in and yeah, play uh, the whole marketing game. That, that was his biggest point too, right? So I mean, on, on, you have two spectrums, right? You have the government, which is the macro scene, which pushes what Singapore did really well. But then you, still, entrepreneurs have to rise to the challenge, and then you have to push the envelope. But then you have to you know change the whole conception of food, right? Um, and hearing that. You know, like the story of, you know, how there's first layers of franchises from rich guys who probably largely are devoid of, you know, soul. They just want to make the money probably, right? And then you, you, you have the story of, you know, Benjamin Young and inspiring a whole generation, making it possible to pave the way for people like yourself to step on it, right? I've, I've spoken to him about this. He said, don't credit me for that because all he wanted to do was make money. Although I, I think while he was denying that fact, I think he secretly does have the same intention of you know growing the food scene but he's like no i'm in it for the money man but look you have but you have to also um look at his actions right yes because at the end of the day like and i've heard from insider people working with him man he just like constantly yeah he's constantly like innovating and thinking and changing how to make the business better and maybe you're right maybe he was doing it because of the money but by innovating so fast and changing it kind of forced to change the culture, how people think, and, and right. the result is exactly. Like I said, yeah. he denies the fact that he's yeah. he's doing that, you know, for for the good of the yeah. industry. But yeah. I think he was. But what's really important is like in business, uh, whether it be food or whatever, you do need money. That's a fact. Of course. But it can't be about money alone. I think if you want to have an, an enduring franchise uh, or business that lasts a few decades, uh, the, the reason why like franchises like McDonald's work because they have this whole uh, system, system, and it's becomes part of your identity growing up, I guess. So they kind of capture early. So um, where did these notions then begin to be ingrained of hospitality and you know, customers first? Was it because of your experiences in America and then you taking that and running with it? Or was it because of you and then experiencing that and then it became like you just accentuated further? 
I think it is a cycle. And whenever I tell this part of the story of how I came to be, at least in this industry, uh, it's, it's a simple story of how when we were all young and we were in primary school and we have to write what do we want to be when we grow up. Mm. Uh, and as an Asian kid, you know, you're, you're kind of programmed to say, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor and, and the likes, right? Yeah. Uh, and I did that. I, I wrote, you know, yes. uh, essays <laughs> uh, uh, to that. Um, what do you call it? Yeah. To, to, to please the teachers and, and yeah. the parents. But there was one job that I really wanted to write that I didn't there. And I always challenge people to take a guess. Would you like to just... It, well, I mean, I'm cheating. I, I heard all your podcasts already. Okay, so, yeah. so, uh, so you wanted to be a clown. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and I'm very glad you didn't write that down because you could have been Renny the Clown from PJ instead of <laughs> the burger guy who you know filled this huge gap for me. Because it's, it's very weird. When I first moved to Asia, um, it's only that that point in time when I started to crave American food, like pizzas and burger. Uh, Cause when I was living in America, it's just, you know, it's there everywhere and you know, you don't want to get it. So I'm glad that, you know, you filled that gap and <laughs> you made a really great product that, you know, really reminds me of home and then took it even further. Right. And made it something actually very Asian. Um, I think if I may just um, add on a little bit to why I wanted to be a clown yeah. uh, was the fact that, as a young child, I, I love to please people. I like to make people happy. Mm, okay, and I yes. found joy in that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't re- know as a child that, you know, um, you can do that through your the various services or the product that you produce as an adult, whether in your career mm-hmm. or not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, just as your current job, you know, quote unquote, yeah. uh, currently is, is producing this podcast, but it does provide a service to somebody yes. who you would derive joy out of if you know they were beneficial. It's not valuable for them. They're learning something. So for me, uh, it was in my pursuit of being an engineer um, while I was working part-time, I mean, while studying and I was working part-time and my first job was actually Starbucks, an American chain, that I learned that FMB is not what my parents or what everyone made it to be, yep. which is, is for the uneducated, is for the people who have no other choices, blah, 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 is for the foreign workers. That's, that's during my time when I, before I joined, that was what was said about FMB. It is still said about it at this point in time, uh, but maybe at this day, it's a little bit more glorified. But the point here is that uh, I fell in love with FMB because I realized that a simple latte that I make could instantaneously create a form of either joy or, or relief to the consumer. And it was then that I realized, hey, I could connect that, that the fact that I could make people happy through what I do instantaneously. Okay, so then that, that's pretty much, uh, if you go back to your story, then that's, it must have been a journey. So it's, it's always been in you. You're the type of person who needs, who really derives joy. And it makes sense. You serve other people, you serve yourself, right? And that's probably the best way to do it. And um, that's what you really loved, probably from young. And I guess it's like uh, going through, you know, your experiences, going to America, working in Starbucks, working in Yellowstone, and it probably cultivates and seeds it, right? In fact, my experience in the States kind of honed in the idea that hey, you can actually get paid for a living doing this because, well, at least in the States, uh, I was a server. Um, I got really great tips because of... How you know, treated the, st- the customers. Me, of me being Asian, in fact, you know, <laughs> being, just being us, being polite, being, yeah. um, you know, a little bit more thoughtful. Um, and and uh, while the Americans were earning like 10% tips, I was working with 20 and 30% tips. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that, hey, if I put in that little bit of effort, people do appreciate yeah. it. And that's where I connected the idea of, hey, I'm able to make someone happy. I'm able to make money at the same time. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think that's also the first step to, to and I think we'll, we'll talk about this somewhere later on, uh, first step to finding the Ikigai. Mm, okay, ikigai, yeah, right? okay. Uh, so one of the best things I learned from listening to Denny Myers was that, and the reason why he was so concerned about scaling was he didn't want more work, right? Uh, but then he had this uh, epiphany and realization that he found out how to systematize it, right? Uh, you know, just by being vocal about what are the, the culture and the values to every single staff in the training, right? So, you know, this, you kind of had this experience of needing to, I mean, wanting to bring joy to people. And then you bring this to the forefront when you first start Burger Lab. So how did you systematically translate this into the business then? Honestly, to this day, we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, yeah. It's a different process, I think, um, if you start, are starting in, in a country where service is already mm-hmm. something that is appreciated, something that is spoke, spoken about, that is acknowledged within this, the, the culture. Where, where would that uh, be? I, I mean, the States or the for Western sure. countries, yes. for one. Uh, but easily, I can say Singapore, Taiwan, uh, mm, countries that true. appreciate that as well. Yes, yes. Um, however, in Malaysia... It, I found that to be a bit of a struggle. In fact, you don't have to do too much to impress people with service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the last couple of years, uh, a lot of people have been stepping up, uh, thankfully. And and that forces even us ourselves, where we have to say, hey, where we were before, where people were saying, oh, wow, Burger has great service, it's now common. Yeah. And we need to find the next level. right? And I think that's how, number one, uh, Brands like Haiti Lao is born out of like let's go to the extreme, yeah. Right? Who cares about just mm. great service? Let's go. I see what you mean. You know, yeah. legendary. But that's coming from China, right? Well, that's coming from China for sure. Um, but to have that level of service uh, in China is unthinkable. Is I'm it? not saying that really? the, China, the service there is bad. Right? Okay, maybe but, maybe Shanghai not. It's probably normal to have good service in Shanghai, but maybe outside. Yes, yeah. but the way that Haiti Lao did it was beyond mm. what I think even the Westerners mm. you know, could ever think of. You know, true, true, true. Who would have thought that while you're waiting for your food, you get free snacks, you get your nails polished, yes. and, and, the, yeah. and the likes, right? Yeah. So um, I think coming to the point um, is that here in Malaysia, uh, we need to know where we are at in terms of what the norm is. Yes. Uh, and you just, you don't need, well, for me, I feel that everything comes with a cost. If you want to, if I want to be like Haiti Lao, I can, but it's going to cost me so mm-hmm, much. Mm-hmm. Right? So well, our strategy has always been: where can we find um, the, the where the standard of norm of service is, and then go one two, you know, levels beyond yeah. that, right? yeah. and continue to to move up as we need to. Because again, good customer service comes at a price. Yeah. It comes with training. It comes with um, buying better. Uh, I wouldn't say equipment, but just tools and functions in place to, to make customers have that better experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even an app, right? Whether you, you spend uh, 50000 on an app developer or you spend 200000 on an app developer, you get two very different products. Yeah. Right? Uh, so what I'm trying to say here is that right now, uh, we are at a point where it's constantly evolving. Um, and I always tell my team, look, we are special because we do this. Yeah. But when everyone is doing what we're doing, we're no longer special, Correct. right? If everyone's special, no one is special. And yeah. you've got to keep, keep raising the bar. That. Why, why has this element of good service been missing in Southeast Asia? And I, I could fairly say that confidently because I, I lived in Bangkok and Vietnam. Um, I've visited Philippines and know people there. I think in general, maybe their service level is a little bit better for a, a certain F&B. Uh, Indonesia, 
okay, but also like probably about the same. They're all about the same level. Like, where, why is this missing in Southeast Asia? Mm, okay, again, my answer is going to skew towards just Malay, uh, towards Malaysia. Malaysian okay, side. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, why is it like that? So when we first started, one of the things that I could identify was um, sorely missing was a sense of ownership. When I worked in the states, or when I worked in uh, yeah, when I worked in the states, I realized that there. The, the way they train their team or even in Starbucks the way they train their team is is rallying them under one roof and saying that hey you know we are we are all in this together Starbucks for example I, I don't know if you know this everyone calls each other partners mm. right if I go to the States I go to Canada I go to um, Hong Kong we're all Starbucks partners yeah. right and that Although that is just one way to just rally people down, but there is a lot of things that's within the culture that makes you feel like you belong. Yeah. And when you feel like you belong, you will naturally want to defend. Okay. Right. So I think that's where uh, a lot of times in Malaysia businesses fail because number one, um, they couldn't rally their team because they don't understand the idea that hey, the staff are your biggest asset. If the staff are um, a part of your your being, a part of the business they would naturally want to take care of their customers. And I think this is what Danny Meyer says a lot, right? Yeah. Um, so I found that missing. Then the other biggest issue is that they don't want to hire locals because locals ask for a lot of money, quote-unquote. Mm. Right? So the next easiest option is to find foreign workers. Mm. And when you have foreign workers coming in, and no offense to them, um, no, no, no offense to, to the foreign workers, because they are not... And the reason why they provide a lesser service is because number one, there's always going to be a language barrier, which yes. can be overcome if the, 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 the business owners take time to train them or put them through a training to say, hey, you know. Uh, Where you see that really well is in hawkers though, right? The foreign workers, they will learn the local language. Yes. And that helps bridge a lot of things actually. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but again, in, in a lot of the FMB, uh, in the majority of the FMB scene back in 2012 when I first started, I realized that um, owners do not take pride in their business enough to give training. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, there's the foreign worker issue um, and then there's a the cultural issue. Mm. So language is just one thing, but body language, you know, how do you serve your customers, yeah. uh, whether you fold up with them or not, uh, those are, it takes a lot of effort. And we, we had to go through that yeah. to teach people to say, hey, ask for feedback and when there's a feedback, what do you do with that feedback? Because yeah. I also realized that there's a lot of people who, who, who try to get a feedback, but, oh, thank you very much. Oh, I'll let, I'll let the, the boss know. Yeah. And it stops there. As yeah. a consumer, you'll be like, yeah, I know nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, it, it boils down to the employers. When the employers don't care enough, when all they think about is, I want to run my restaurant, but they do not get the people around them involved enough, that's yeah. where service becomes a secondary talk. Yeah. So I think, you know, if I'm going to read in between the lines, so, and if you want to extrapolate further, it's possibly because the way the F&B industry developed, right? If, if it's really about these guys who are in it just for the money, there's no need to rally around people and bringing a great experience, right? And then at the end of the day, it's just, you know, you don't care about this person. They're going to probably quit their job and transact out, get another young person. And you have this vicious cycle of really bad culture. It's because these people just are probably bringing in franchises just to make money. as like probably first wave or something well, like this. Well, there, there's still a few reasons that I just thought of. Um, a lot of times they were just not exposed. They didn't know what was outside. That's, we, that's a good point. We live right? in a different world right now yeah. where, um, well, at least when I first started, I, I learned about 
what Danny Myers was doing. I learned about what Richard Branson mm-hmm. was doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I think a lot of seniors before me, restaurante- restauranters before me, um, did not have the exposure. They didn't know any better. They didn't know yeah. what service was, right? Yeah. And also, it was during that period of time, 2012 plus minus, right, uh, where you know AirAsia was was saying, "Hey, everyone can fly." And with the extent, with the ability of people being able to travel, being able to be more exposed, they come back saying, "Hey, I want to take this concept I saw," mm. and, and like, which is exactly what I did. Yes, that's a good point. Yes, right. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. all these things. Uh, it, it wasn't within our culture, but. Uh, we were able to adapt because we were able to see the world mm-hmm. um, from from a nearer distance. Yeah. So there, essentially, there was no language to translate culture, and I guess that's what Danny Meyer did. He created language, and that's what Howard Schultz did with Starbucks, right? Yeah. And that's what they're really famous for. Um, and, I, and I think that brings up to a good point because that kind of s- ecosystem, how it started off. Um, I guess yeah, from from modernization of you know from World War II onwards, right? That the, that kind of way it built defines the relationship of how people think about food, right? And that in turn probably is because people were making food so transactional and didn't, didn't see it, or because they didn't have the the knowledge, right? And you know, of course, the, the, the timing of the information age allowed us to take advantage of that, but it left a big gap for people to kind of take advantage of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you, what do you think then would be? The next phase then what what happens next right so we're, we're at this point where we can take the learnings people are doing that uh what does the next evolution of fmb industry look like then well if i have to place a bet um and given what and this answer would be a post-covid world answer <laughs> oh, true um yeah. it would be the localization of flavors and and being really proud of who we are um in fact we as burger lab we are consciously Saying, hey, our next few feature burgers would would revolve around local flavors more. Mm. Uh, we have a nasi lemak coming up, which is a relaunch of a, a classic product, yep. and after that, we have a sambal petai burger, and then yes. we have a rojak burger, right? Mm. And these are the three next things that we'll be launching out. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, apart from just talking about local flavors um, and infusing it, you know, in, with with Western flavors, I don't think it's it's all about at least for us. It's not all about just saying I want this local flavor here, but I'm going to take local flavor and then give it a bit of a western pivot yeah uh, but beyond that I think local producers I think there are a lot of people uh, that we are not that I think the mass uh, market is not hearing of yet but there are a lot of people behind the scene right um, look we have our own local caviar mm, right? yes um, I saw that um, who, who was the one it was, it was Chai he was working with the guy who was yes, bringing it in yes yeah. um, and we have our own local chocolatier you know Ning, uh, Ning both yes. our friends right yeah. um, and I think that's not, not just you know caviars and chocolate but in terms of um, um, farmers yes right uh, be ch- chicken rarers or, or just plantations and and um, um, even cow farms there are a lot of people behind the scene trying to say hey you know what Malaysians can grow I, I, I don't know if it's world class but definitely um, of high standard quality pro- produce of high standard and I yeah. think we need to give that support because too many times we as a business are forced to buy imported products because mm. customers feel that it is a better product and then it becomes out of reach right and that defines how people think about um, 
the different types of food, you know, yeah. Western food versus local food. And it's like you said, that forces their conception to look down on things that really are about craftsmanship, right? And what you're talking about is really pushing artistry and craftsmanship. And I think that was one of the biggest things when I moved here that like I felt was missing. Um, and it's, it's going to be, it would probably be intellectually dishonest to say that craftsmanship has not existed in Southeast Asia. I think with the advent of technology and industrialization, I think those things were lost, right? I think the fact that people look down on hawker foods is terrible because it's really someone prefer, perfecting, doing one dish, perfecting it every single day over and over again. And, um, maybe because it's norm. So yeah, we, yeah we don't exactly. think too much of it. Yeah, exactly. So you, yeah. So then I guess what you're saying is the trend might be shifting back to reconsolidating, right? But then focusing on the higher quality things, but you know, I guess finding craftsmanship again, right? Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, uh, good answer. <laughs> uh, that's a good summary of whatever I said. Okay. Let's, let's go back to a little bit about you, uh, personally then. Um, what's your favorite thing about America? Um, see, the answer has changed. That's um, good. You're maturing. When I was there, oh, I don't think it's about maturity. I think, uh, my perception of the States has changed because of what has happened in the last <laughs> four years. Well, it was always there. It's just, it took something like this to bring it yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I was working there, I love the people. Mm-hmm. I thought they were friendly. I really did not experience any racism. Yeah, I'm sure it exists. Yes, right? of, course, of course. I personally did not uh, experience it. Uh, but again, I was in Yellowstone. I was in, in the wilderness. And I believe people who love nature generally mm-hmm. aren't. Nicer you know, people. Yeah, yeah. they're generally good people. Um, so that was one of my biggest takeaways because we see, before hating to the States, there is a lot of warning from my friends and my family that, hey, you know, be careful. Mm. Uh, they might bully you, this and that. But that, that was exact, that was the opposite of what I experienced. And I think that, um, America is a huge, huge country. Yes. Uh, but w- what, what it devoids of a culture? If, you know, what is an American culture? It's a hamburger, right? Mm. Um, you're, you're gonna trigger me, man. <laughs> Well, that's what people say, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's right. what people say. Yeah, yeah. And and but what I found was that um, I did experience a little bit of the freedom that people talk about. Mm, okay, if that mm. makes sense, I, I don't know yeah. how to put it in words, but I there is just that 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 sense of you can do whatever you want as long mm. as it's not harming somebody else. Yes, yes. Right, and and that's your right to do so. Yeah, and that's what I liked about America. Interesting. That's a very good point. And I think growing up. I took it for granted until I really come to Asia. And I mean, honestly, for like 95 or even more, like percent, whatever, you are free. But of course, there are certain things that you just really shouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> right. But in America, arguably, it pushes to like 99%, right? You're free you know? to express yourself. For the most yeah, part, really. Right? Yeah. Like in any kind of format, right? Yeah. So. And now, now I think it's a little bit different. I think uh, obviously what you see in the States, um, and, and this is coming from a point of view where I I'm I probably have a very myopic view because of where my political leanings are, mm. right? Um, and there's always both sides to the story. But what we see is is an, an America that has too much freedom, and that freedom yes. allows them to to bicker over the smallest thing, yeah. to allow them to yeah. not care about one another, yeah. And that is the saddest thing that that mm-hmm. um, I see. And even the friends that I made in the states, I'm still friends with them on Facebook. But yeah. You can see that opposing view, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what 
feel makes me really disheartened about you know the state of America right now. Yeah, I was listening to a very good podcast. I'm going to butcher this. Um, it was with Jason Calacanis, uh, Dave Sachs, a bunch of famous tech entrepreneurs, and they were discussing that exact thing about. I forget. It's so something something window, right? So if you're like in this window, it's either in or out of the discussion. And like, if you're not part of that, like, if you say the wrong thing, like black lives, that's in the window, right? Then like, you're going to get like roasted if you say the wrong thing about it. Yeah. And if it's either out of the window, but like, if it's out, then you know, it doesn't matter. So it's right. Like the polarization, um, the far right went far right. The far left went far left. And it's just like <laughs> massively ground, extreme. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's a result of that kind of system. And I guess, um, is that, I guess that's what you're saying is probably the, what came bad out of America. But it's be- the same freedom that they were given that's working against them. Yes, correct. Exactly. And, does that mean before you didn't have any really bad conceptions about America then? Or what, what didn't you like? What didn't I like? Yeah, back then, I guess. Everything was just massive. Like <laughs> every single portion of, of dish I, I ordered was massive. Yes. And I kind of, and the, the sad thing was I grew accustomed to it. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then kind of that helped me balloon my size. But, um, oh, is there anything bad? Again, I was on, on the East Coast, sorry, on the West Coast. I was, out back, uh, mm. I was enjoying nature. Uh, it's really hard to find anything to mm. not like. Um, I and you know a lot of my friends that I made during that time or travel with me there, they would make a point to go travel between cities. Um, I I only travel to cities to eat, mm-hmm. um, but if I could, I I would always go back to to uh, the parks. Yes. So yes. I think my perception of what I saw in the States was very different from most people. Yeah. I chose to, to be within the nature. You chose the good stuff that you really loved, <laughs> which yes. is fair. Okay, so top three, you have to pick three mm-hmm. f- best foods that you love. Uh, has to be global. Oh, this is a tricky one because I'm a chak fan guy. Mm, okay. I am an economy rice guy for yeah. the most part. So that basically to explain that further, right? Uh, it's... I guess this concept across Southeast Asia has to be, because it's in Vietnam for sure. I think Thailand probably has it, right? So it's just basically probably Chinese influence, whatever country you go to. It's a bunch of Chinese dishes, right? Vegetables, meats, tofus, all pre-cooked in kind of like a buffet, I guess. Right. And then it's uh, economy, right? So it's basically for the poor guy, uh, how it started out, I guess. Yes. And for, for now it's for office workers, right? And uh, I guess, um, so you pick your, you, you get your rice yeah. and then you pick from whatever dishes you want. And then at the end, there's a lady that will calculate how yes. much you take and how much that would cost. It depends if she likes you or not. She's charging you <laughs> yeah. more or not. The same person can take, uh, the two different person can take the same dishes. Yes. But I end up and with different, different amounts. Prices. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so, uh, tough one up there. I'm, right? I'm a, I'm a tough one guy because, so to me, um, one thing that people have to understand about Jafan is that you get hundreds of choices of dishes mm, laid, no wonder. You know, okay. in front of you. It's not just three or four okay, dishes. You got pork, but you got 10 different ways that pork. You know, it's, yeah. it's cooked. Um, so there's that. Uh, okay, so for me, that's that's homey. That's yeah. something that is for part of my, my daily life. Um, oh man, this is a tough one. I, I, I enjoy a lot of food that um, I realize I enjoy more when it's people that I know. Mm. So, okay. so okay. we talk about Good Food Alliance and why Good Food Alliance was formed in the first place. Not because, I mean, there was a grander plan to, to bring all FMB together. Yes. It's because I really like them. I want to be their friend. I want to put them in a group. I get discounts. <laughs> that was basically it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit that. But more than anything else, I mean, these this are people that I think I resonate with. And when they cook, I generally enjoy their food. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna build out on this answer because mm. I generally like food, uh, but if it's cooked by friends, um, I, 
that's that's the part of me where I believe service is a part of what makes food taste better. It's the experience. It's the experience. Yeah. yeah. So nothing tops that when it's cooked by someone that you personally know. Yeah, with love, with the yeah. atmosphere. And I, you know, in my last conversation with the, the Copper founders, uh, Chai, like, I had not realized how much thought goes into creating an experience. Like the way they describe design, uh, how the temperatures outside will affect how he will shape his menu and dish. Of course, it's very different for a, a multi-dish restaurant versus a single-dish restaurant. But I think still the, the, the process goes into creating an experience and your end product and, and service. So I think that's a, that's a very fair point. You know, it's it's very and so yeah, you are copping out. But I'm going to trap yeah. you again. Um, <laughs> what's your last meal then? Huh. You're going to be executed. This is it. Oh oh. Or maybe you're dying and this is your 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 last meal. I'm I'm very interested into a steamboat right now. Okay, you're in top pot. So you do one nice hot pot. Uh, who, what's the best in Southeast Asia, Asia, Malaysia? So this might sound like a cop-out answer, but it's not. Uh, I can go to any hot pot and build a great soup out of it. Mm. That's a technique. True. People don't understand okay. that. I understand. Right? Yeah. Uh, for example, if I go to a buffet hot pot, like Tsukishi, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to get all the vegetables, all the aromatics and whatnot, dump it in the soup first because their soup is flat. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to yeah. build flavor. I'm going to order a few plates of sacrificial meat, I call it. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to dump it in there. It's going to boil the hell out of it. <laughs> you right? get the flavor from yes. that. Yes. Okay, right. okay. That's when I get, you know, uh, the next batch of meat and I swivel in it. And that's where the soup is more flavorful. Yeah. So to me, it's, I even have a process where I have a grand ending where I scoop everything out. I never let them top up the soup. Right. And then when the soup is like almost just simmering, I order a plate of rice, dump it in there, whip some egg yolk, mm. put it, um, you know, uh, turn down the fire and then just create this custardy, um, <laughs> um, soup with, it's like congee. Yeah. Right. But it's so full of flavor because of everything else that you put into that. To me, that's basically you're innovating while you're cooking and eating at the same time. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay, I see. Okay, that's that's a. I could see like so you basically tweak your last meal to whatever you love. Yes, and mm-hmm. yesterday I was just at uh, Beauty in the Pot, mm. and everyone was so stressed out because I was like, guys, do not touch anything. Let me build the <laughs> soup first. I'll tell you when to eat. Okay, <laughs> okay. Like, I kind of enjoyed this. <laughs> like no. Let me do this. This is your style, your way. Yeah. yeah. I once I'm done in the first five to 10 minutes, you can put in your meat and mm. then, you know, you can thank me later. Yeah. So um, I remember when we were probably at one of these talks, um, you mentioned that you're an introvert. Do you still feel that you're an introvert? Yes. Um, yeah. I didn't want to come here today. <laughs> Honestly, I was you're so, tired. I was mentally tired yeah. because I had a long yeah. day yesterday. I was like, yeah, I didn't want to come out. But, you know, I, I, I do make an effort. And a lot of times... It's, it's overcoming that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, but do you get often mistaken as an extrovert? Of course. Yeah. So what is your definition of introvert? Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, the best, I don't have an answer. I'm not a psychologist, but the best um, way that has been described uh, would be someone who, who recharges or, yeah. you know, um, by, by being by themselves uh, mm-hmm. was an extrovert recharges himself but again um, we are going you know in the extreme of um, the, there's a spectrum you know where an introvert has to be this way or yes. an extrovert has correct, to be that correct, way correct. Uh, I don't know if I'm an ambivert but I think I do well on both yeah. uh, if the situation required for it but there are days where I have built out on stuff yeah. even big meetings because mm. I just cannot you just need to reach hard yes. essentially All right so 
I guess if you you feel more of an introvert, right? Now, what are the advantages or maybe disadvantages of being an introverted leader with a strong sense of feelings and emotions? Is there a benefit? I've read a lot of articles that say that's that's a that's a benefit. Um, well, let's look at your experience. What think about well, it? Well, experience wise, hmm, let's go on. I okay. I'm gonna just divert a little bit. I, I know one thing that is a bad trait about me that has done well for me. Mm. Uh, if we can associate, you know, being an introvert could to be a negative trait, right? Yeah. Um, one thing about me is I'm very low self esteem. A lot of people mm. don't see that nowadays, maybe. Uh, but I'm very low self-esteem. I, dub- I, I, I double, triple doubt everything that I do. Mm. But that, again, allows me to double check and triple check every single idea mm-hmm. that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as, as for being an introvert, um, I think one thing is because I get to spend time alone a lot, at least you know when I was younger, there was a lot more time for reflection. Yeah. Apart from that, when I am not talking to my team or like, you know, I'm in the office, I'm just in my own zone. Um, they, they assume that I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> <laughs> You're just thinking. <laughs> yeah, just leave me alone. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Yeah. But no, it's just me like, uh, you know, try, wanting to have my alone time. Because every time someone talks to me, and it's actually exponential. Like yeah. a one-on-one session like this, great. Uh, if there's two person, it gets more, mm, more tiring. Yeah, and then yeah. uh, when I go for talks uh, where there's like hundreds of people, mm. uh, I need a whole day by myself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. I don't understand it. Yeah. It's one thing that I've tried to overcome, but I couldn't. But I think for me, being able to just openly express my thoughts nowadays freely and being able to go to talks is, is quite an accomplishment. I didn't think that I could be there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I froze up uh, when I was... Uh, this is... When I was younger, uh, I think I was like 11 years old, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I was nominated to go uh, to go on on stage to to oh, what's what's this thing that they force us to do in school? So basically, you memorize a story and you go out there. It's story. It's a storytelling contest, mm-hmm. right? So I was nominated by my class to do so. Memorize everything. Stood in front of, uh, and that was my first experience of just my energy being drained mm. up. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a far, far cry from where I used to be. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, you definitely, I think it's just, you know, practicing, uh, keep doing it. Uh, then you kind of find your, your pace and you get, it's building confidence at the end of the day, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah definitely. Even to today, I still wonder why do people want to talk to me? And that's where the self doubt and the introvert bit comes mm, in. Yeah. Because I still don't see myself in the position that some might see me in. And yeah. the way people refer to me as if, um, I, I I know my shit. Yeah, I don't. I am still the same guy that I yeah. feel that I'm still the same guy that I first started. Well, you know a little bit more, right? And I think yeah. I do know a little bit more. But again, that's that. It's just uh, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's weighing you down. It's part yeah. of you. Yeah, it's, it's part of me. <laughs> Which I think is you're right. It's a double edged sword, right? It, it allows you to keep questioning, right? And I'm, and listening to your other podcasts, like, I think what's really interesting that you bring up, you know, you are you are a deep thinker. You are quite philosophical, and I found that very interesting. You know, uh, it's and I think that is massively critical as a skill as a leader because a lot of people are not aware of or take the time to think about introspection. And of course, even if you do introspect, there's a lot of cognitive bias that gets in the way. So the more you can really question and think about it, allows you to come up with probably better answers and solutions, or even just creativity, right? You know, because if you have a lot of experiences, when you reflect, then it could just come out of whatever I don't know, wherever creativity comes from. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, more about you then. What's the best burger you ever had? 
Again, I think you should stop asking questions like that because I realize makes you think. <laughs> no, it's not that. I think there there is this need of us to keep going back to hey, that was the best ever. I I find a flaw in that. I don't know why. Well, I I can enjoy a meal and yeah. and and say for example, the last time I had uh, a burger by um, sorry, I forgot his name. What's that guy's name in in Thai? Ah. I'm sorry, bro. If you're listening to this, oh, I'm an idiot. His name is Taiki. Taiki, yes, Taiki, Taiki, yes, Taiki. Taiki. So when I had Taiki's burger, I was like, yeah, that's the best burger. Mm. And then um, I had Chai's re- recent collaboration with us, um, and I felt that was one of the better burgers. Then mm. I realized that over my life, there are a lot of great burgers, and I think it's not fair and disrespectful to that moment when I appreciate it most because unless I'm having it side by side yes right then maybe I can come up with a scoring method to say which is the best burger I've ever had yeah. but I had a lot of best burgers yeah well because a lot of it feeds into the experience and uh, the reason why I don't think it's a cop out and Chai explained this pretty well like his pivotal moment when he was stuck as a chef and this is before he joined Michelin Star Restaurant right it was when he went to Macau mm-hmm. and then he he didn't even know who uh, Joel Robuchon was at the time. And he went to his one-star Macau restaurant and it just blew him away. And if he didn't have that experience of, you know, this is like the best food, you know, you know what he did after that? He quit his, he went back to Malaysia, quit his job, flew back to Macau, begged for a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he couldn't get the job. <laughs> so then that's why he had this whole Shanghai experience. But then that put him onto a path to push even further. And without that experience of having a best food at that moment, and you're right, it's an experience that will change over time. He would not have ended up in... Uh, I'm going to say this name wrong. Old Slaus again in in you know in in uh, Netherlands, yeah. Uh, Netherlands, yeah. So I think you know it it is quite okay to pinpoint it, but you are astute to point out you know it's it's not black or white, and mm-hmm. it will change. But I think those moments are very important. But if you're speaking of that moment, I can pin it down to one moment that I had. Mm. But it wasn't a burger; it was a sandwich. Okay. Um, and I and I'm I'm sure you've read this somewhere um, because I've spoken about it before. I might have missed it. Um. I'm trying to think of what's the name. Mama's Mama's Kitchen at Washington Square mm. in is it Seattle or California? Um, San Francisco. Mm, San Francisco. Yeah. So it was an accidental find. We were walking down to the wharf, um, and we we it was like seven a.m. eight a.m. in the morning, and we yeah. saw this queue outside this place called Mama's Kitchen, and. The next day we went to, to queue up, you know, being Asians, we saw a queue, we were like, let's yeah. go queue up as well. Um, and I ate a sandwich. Uh, it was called the Monte Cristo sandwich. Mm. I didn't know the place was famous. I mean, there was a queue, but it was a small store, right? But when I had it, I had what I would usually refer to a ratatouille moment. Mm-hmm. Remember the cartoon? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, it basically blew my mind. And that was when I, for the first time in my life, I realized that food could evoke emotion yeah i almost cried about a two moment okay i yes. understand i understand right. wow so that sandwich was was memorable to me um it didn't have the same effect to my friends mm, right? but i was like what the hell is this yeah right? they yeah. had fresh um jam um every everything there was just good produce freshly made daily yeah. and when i read about it that, that kind of cemented the 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 experience the emotion, the experience, yeah, okay. Yeah. And that's when when we started Burger Lab a few years later, that was a reference point. I wanted to create burgers, and when people bite into it, it, 
it triggers something. It triggers an mm. emotion in them. Now, I don't always hit it, but we have had people describe this kind of moment yeah. to us. <laughs> no, I really like that point because um, when I first had my first Shake Shack burger, it it makes you pause. Yeah. But the problem is like you keep eating it over time so you get desensitized. Exactly. And, and to be fair, like so I had Shake Shack when it first came out and I was living in New York. Um, and then I was just, you know, when I left to Asia 2012, um, probably when you launched it, I was probably here for a few months and I jumped around. Uh, but then when I came back to Malaysia and had your burger, it was like, oh shit, this is like that okay. moment. So you're right, it evoked the emotion, it evoked the experience. And I guess if you're an F&B entrepreneur, to, to a degree, if you want to differentiate, that's one element you probably should be thinking about, how, how to kind of innovate that or recreate that moment. And I guess it could be taken in your experience to a burger chain or or to like Chai's experience in a fine dining restaurant too, mm-hmm. very similar. And I think no matter what though, F&B, it comes down to that. And if you can create that experience, right? Okay. Well, I like that question. Yeah. I like that question because yeah. it, it really, well, in fact, it just gave me an idea. My new tagline should be my burger lab, best enjoyed once a month. <laughs> We've had people who come way too frequently. Yes, you, you'll be desensitized to it. And you yeah. will be desensitized to it. I'm like, and I've done that to myself before. Yeah. You know, I like something, I keep doing yeah, 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 You yeah. like a music, keep listening. And then you don't want to go back yeah. to it, right? So. Yeah. And I, I, when I was doing research, I saw a lot of Twitter memes about burger lab. And there was like the meme of the guys like me eating my burger lab after MCO, the lockdown, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, so good, right? Um, so last thing about yourself before we move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, all your PR is about, you know, how good you are, how awesome you are. Yay, running. Uh, fuck. Really? Yeah, man. It's all, it's all good stuff. Like, okay, oh, maybe except one. Burger Lab. Burger Lab. Not burger lab. Myself, well, right? it's tied to you, right? Oh, I think it's only recently that it's tied. To probably. So you're yeah. doing a good job of PR somehow. All right. Well, tell me about the dark side. What, what is it that people don't like about you? Uh, are you perfectionist or demanding or what what triggers my you? Team, I think yeah. easiest to start is, is with my team. Sure. I don't communicate well. Mm. Um, a lot of times I would, I would, being an introvert myself, I would wander off and, and have side projects. And then when it comes to the real work, I'll be like, hey team, here's this guy that I've been talking to for the last two months. Uh, yeah, okay. Here, take over. Take it over. Okay. Do all the I work. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, being in my position now, uh, that's the fun part of it, yeah. right? We make connections, we build ideas, and then after yeah. that, you, you have a team that helps you execute, execute the ideas. Right? I, I mean, I wouldn't hand it off to them if I didn't think that they would do a good job. But yeah. they don't like it when I, I don't purposely keep them in the dark. It's just I, I can be talking to four or five person, yeah. you know, simultaneously. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I only hand it off to them. Um, but that's that's one thing. The other one is I can be a hypocrite sometimes. Because okay. I change my mind so frequently, uh, right? Okay. Uh, and it's worse during this MCO period because a lot of times I will have a certain uh, idea of how things are. Okay, this MCO period, uh, people are going to behave this way. I, as a leader, I need to make that judgment call. Yeah. Right. I'll say, hey guys, we prepared to do this because of these conditions. Yeah. And then one week later, something else changes. Yeah. Then I'll be like, hey guys, scrap that idea, and they've already made plans for it. Mm. And and it, MCO made this flaw of mine a lot more prominent mm-hmm. but I think over the years that's who I am uh, I, 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 I changed my mind a lot and I think this is something that uh, Benjamin has been um, uh, criticized for I mean among his yes team, he has yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a good thing I can understand if I'm working for someone like that it can be freaking annoying yes it's really good that you have this awareness so I'm going to play devil's advocate I think in the food industry whether it be you manufacturing big or small I think that characteristic for driving demand is critical because I, I think part of that innovation and change um, 
helped really build what you have today, right? But the problem is, of course, if it goes unfettered into chaos, (laughs) you're going to destroy your business too. And the reason why I say this is because I also know that Amy Cheng, the (laughs) co-founder of Amazing Grace, exactly the same, you know, a lot of similar criticism I've heard in the past. And I guess the thing that you have to be very careful about is like, you can have you can have those ideas. I think they're important to, to drive the company forward. But you know, yes, you, you hand it to the team to make sure they can do it. But at the same time, if you're not also listening to the other side of the team, you may just think it's possible and just keep throwing things on them. And then if they don't feel heard, and that's where you know the problems arise. And I think that's part of the challenges. But I think you know you need that drive forward. If not, you're doing the same thing over and over, and then you're going to become you know forgotten, not irrelevant. Well, the, if I can put an, an analogy to it, the way I tell my team is that look, you're you're like a um, inflatable tire. I'm going to keep pumping yeah. gas into you so that you know, you're constantly filled, filled up. Uh, but I say the release valve is on your hand. And mm. any given time you feel overwhelmed, you can make it be known. But the most important part of that then is how do you create a culture where they feel that they can actually do that? Because sometimes, because you're, everyone's in their own world and not everyone has the same level of skills, right? So how, how do you then create that? Well, when I fuck up, I make sure they know that I fuck up. I make mm. sure I apologize for fucking up. Lead by example. And and I tell them, look, um, I'm not perfect. So occasionally call me out. Mm-hmm. Right? Or not occasionally. I mean, when the time is right or when it's needed to, call me out. Mm-hmm. And I've been called out several times. Um, I think I've ever only stood up for one of it. But the rest of it, I admit to it. I go like, yeah. yep, it's, it's too much. Let's scale it down. Yeah. But I've learned to tune that a little bit better. Like today, uh, I asked the team, hey, tomorrow I, I need you guys to launch this uh, thing. Yeah. Um, and they said, no, today I don't have time. Um, can I have it on Sunday? Can, can I hand it to you on Sunday? So my time in my original timeline was actually Monday. Yeah. But I squeezed them for Saturday. They offered me Sunday. And it's a win-win. <laughs> okay. So it's like a, yeah. Okay. So like a negotiation. But they uh, know they can say no. Okay. That's fair. Cause some people will just be like, no, just take the Monday. Right. Yeah. So that's, I that's, used to be that boss. Uh, you used to be like that. Because okay. it sounded cool. It sounded like, Hey, I was driving the team. Yeah. I realized that I was also driving them to insanity. So, and at the end of the day, um, I guess you have to think reasonably, like, would that one day really make a difference? Yeah. The answer is yes, uh, at least for us. Uh, mm-hmm. So that change. Um, so this next few days is, is a public holiday. And right now, every single restaurant, we're fighting for sitting space. Yeah. So that change would give us an extra 10 sitting space, which yeah. would, you know, be yeah. sales. And yeah. right now, we need every single dollar. But um, that being said, I understand that there's no point driving it and then them breaking down True. and not giving yeah. good service and so on and so forth. That, that's a tough balance of leadership, right? Because ideally, if you could have the culture aligned to that value where you, they understand the value of that one day, because that could, could also make or break certain things possibly, I guess. Um, you have to kind of probably figure a way how, how to make that a priority for them and understand it and how, like you said, they're partners in the business and that 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 if I say this day, it's not coming from nowhere, I guess. But it's also on your part to communicate why that one day matters. Yeah. And I guess if, as a leader, if you didn't do as a good job, then yeah, they're going to be like, okay, it doesn't make sense to my will because I have this on my plate and you're not seeing this, right? So then, and I think that's where a lot of problems happen, miscommunication and things break down. But it's good that you could also bridge it. But I also realize that it is a ongoing process with every single individual. Yes. Because someone new usually don't dare say no until... They break down and then we have to have that heart-to-heart talk to say, what do you think yeah. you broke down? 
I said, oh, because you gave me so many things. But I'm like, why didn't you say no? Yeah. And it's a cycle. And even yeah. though when I try to circumvent that by saying, hey, you're new to this company, you have the right to say no, just FYI. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's a little bit complicated, right? So is it because they're young? Is it because of the Asian culture? Or is it just because of personality? And I would like to ask it because you worked in America too. So you probably have also seen or worked with other young people in America. So I... I would tend to think, because I'm very biased, I grew up in America, I come here, it's like, oh, must be culture. They don't want to speak out their mind. But I, I think that's too simplistic. It is, but it is that. It is. So, 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 you, so you actually think that. it's culture. So when I was in the States, I feel that everyone could speak their mind very mm, easily. Okay. Versus where else here, I wouldn't dare say everyone's like that. But yeah. the younger they are, generally, they're a little bit more um, respective, you know, quote, unquote, yeah. of their seniors. And they were like, you know what, just take it until I can't take it. Yeah. Because I've gone through that cycle so yeah, many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the important thing then, if you really want to improve your culture then, is you have to be very aware of the problem, but then anytime you do it or see it, you have to call it out. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to live it and show it. Otherwise, you tell them it's useless. I've done this millions of times too. Like You say, like these are my values, but it's telling them first of all, but then actually showing it every day. It's, it's building a new habit, building new character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's a good point. Okay, so... Um, we talked a little bit about the, the food scene in Malaysia. Uh, what, you know, we, we talked about the evolution and how it got started. What are the opportunities now and what does the future look like? Sorry, could you repeat that question again? So we talked about a little bit of the history of the F&B scene, uh, where it's kind of at to a degree. Mm-hmm. What opportunities do you think are arising now that people could take advantage of to help further along the F&B industry? And what does the future look like for the F&B industry? I think it, this is going to be a continuation of uh, one of my answers from before. Yeah. I think the localization uh, and, and people picking up uh, all heritage skill sets or heritage cuisine, Yes. Uh, that would be a big, a big uh, step going. Yeah. I, I think that would be a big step going that direction. I also think that there'll be a rise in, in local champions um, because because there are a lot of big brands, unfortunately, because of their size, they are taking a hit uh, due to COVID. Mm. And right now, we do not know where this extent, where the extent of this damage is, mm-hmm. and it's probably still ongoing. Still ongoing, right? Yeah. Um, and you, there is there are words on the street that there are a lot of big brands that will not see the light of day, you know, by by the end of twenty twenty. And where else the the small boys uh, are, are the smaller players are able to continue hustling, just barely making it, yeah. you know. But when the time is right, because the economy will, will always pick up, yeah. right? It's just a matter of time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where opportunities come, and yeah. there will be a rise of local champions. Uh, and apart from that, I think more local businesses should support and and work directly with uh, local producers to come up with more quality um, producers. Yeah. Like, you know, whether it's vegetables, whether it's eggs, meat, and whatnot. Uh, because too many times, we are so driven by the idea that foreign is better. Yeah. Right? That we don't even create that conversation with the local mm-hmm. uh, producers. So I think there is a great chance right now because import-export uh, is going to get tougher. Uh, and also, of course, with the Malaysian potential, Malaysian yeah. weakening, the weakening of Malaysian ringgit, uh, we are forced to... to to work with what we have. And I think that's yeah. a good thing. Not, it's not a bad thing. Of course, thing, of course. Yeah. Right? 
Is, is that uh, always been your view of the whole local thing? Or when you were first starting out, you were trying to import? Or were you just forced by, by uh, necessity to be local? Or To a certain extent, it's forced by necessity. There is a demand from the customers of, hey, for example, uh, we want Australian beef. Yes, correct. At one point, Australian beef was the go-to. <laughs> yeah, right? kind of still is, I guess. Well, yeah. not so much. Yeah. In fact, more, uh, more. with a little bit of education, you can you can get away with some things. Yes. Right? Yeah. And as long as people eat it, they go like, wow, that's delicious. Yes, correct. There's really no two ways around it. Um, but that, that was one of the things, right? Uh, and then later on, we realized that uh, we couldn't just supply Australian beef because of the pricing. Mm-hmm. We worked with uh, New Zealand, we worked with Brazilian beef, we even worked with Indian beef. So I think... One of my perception or one of Bergamo's perception at one point was that we had to use imported yes. right, to be better. Um, but then we realized that there were a lot of more things like as, as well, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that as a restaurant, you don't, we work with what is provided. Yeah. Right. Or when life gives you lemonade, you don't have to make lemonade only. You can do something things yeah. with lemonade right? yeah. uh, with, with lemon. Right. So we realized that, hey, if we don't have that, cut of beef we can still something we can yeah. still do something else yeah. and tweak the recipe tweak the flavor so that it's still a yeah. flavorful, flavorful product a lot of people give shit to Indian beef for example but some of the best rendang actually is using that yeah, rather than true. wagyu correct, wagyu correct. not you know, won't work with it right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so th- it's just that and because of the crisis that we're in or the, because of the opportunity we are given right now um, we are able to reset the the um, the talking point or, or, or we're able to reset how we used to think yeah um, so that's my hope my hope is that Malaysia as a FMB hub are able to be more self-sustainable mm-hmm. uh, where the producers and the restaurants are working hand in hand without the interaction without the interference of middle Mm -hmm. people and I see more of that happening which is a great thing yeah because the reason why I brought that up because I think uh, when I when I did the podcast with Amy Chang for for Amazing Grace from day one that was like their notion they're like you know well of course they're forced by nature to also pick a lot of by nuts are not naturally grown everywhere Mm -hmm. right so but but in general how they come up with flavors has to be very Asian centric and highlight whatever we have so I mean it's it's good to see that you know you have the same idea and hopefully that could really spark more opportunity, more uh, innovation in, in the F&B industry, basically. And then what can technology further drive then to help further either accelerate that trend or maybe just the food industry in general? Well, when it comes to agriculture, I think Malaysia lacks, does lack a lot in technology. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm, and this is me quoting my friend, uh, John from uh, Cultivate. Have you had the chance to meet him yet? Uh, what does he do again? I think I th- met him. He, he runs his own high-tech farm. A vertical farm, yes. Yeah, we vertical went down farm. together. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I brought a few, few, few goods. Yes, yes, so you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out um, and understanding what he does and what traditional farming is, uh, I think there's still a lot more. There's a lot of gap in between. Yes. Right. Um, and we need more people like him, not using his technology, his technology exactly, but continue to innovate, yes, right? Um, to to do more good to Mother Nature, yeah. Earth, right? Uh, but at the same time, also have better products, cleaner tasting products, um, and, and the likes. So 
there is a lot of gap in that. I have no knowledge of it, unfortunately, but I mm-hmm. think the government or, or, or the universities yeah. have to step in at some point yeah. to say, hey, um, they should be talking to people like John, yeah. right? And, and trying to bridge the gap and yeah. have him educate and, and, and pass yeah. on his knowledge. So it'll be a virtuous cycle. I have talked to a few VCs and one or two of them are very interested in investing in agri-tech. Mm-hmm. And I think they see that whole kind of um, opportunity like you're, discuss- you're discussing. If you could bring this technology in and but. I mean, they're probably seeing the agri-tech as, a, as an investment opportunity in itself, but, but the natural effects of that is you have better local produce, yes. higher quality. Like uh, when I was talking to Chai, he, he described how fresh you know, Spanish produce is and how amazing it is and you know, how, how great it tastes. And I think if you bring that level, it just automatically will feed down into the actual... And you don't have to go too far. Exactly. Looking at Taiwan, I, and I refer to Taiwan a lot because uh, I, I, I used to go there frequently. I love I Taiwan. Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they have amazing food mm. and they have a local, a, a amazing ecosystem locally yeah. that supports that. Yeah. Right. So I think we can do that and we just need... Uh, a, a push. push and I think this is the push okay right. yeah so let's, well we should go talk to the government after this <laughs> okay so I want to talk a little bit about the labs right burger lab pizza mm-hmm. lab all the labs um, at least for burger lab I think you're up to nine outlets now seven no, sorry it's uh, six only oh six only yes Ooh, so my, my math's probably off then okay <laughs> uh, six no, but also in Cambodia right uh, we've closed down those last oh, year oh okay last yes. year's so Cambodia it didn't, it didn't make the cut yeah. it didn't make the cut so it was um not working out or it's just too early for Cambodia? Too early for Cambodia? Doesn't have a burger culture? You'd be surprised. There's no burger culture in Cambodia. Okay, I, to be fair, I don't know much about Cambodia. So so when we first opened up there, uh, there were a few burger chains there. Mm-hmm. There were a few burger chains there and they were opened by local Cambodians that was that came back from the States. Yeah. All right. Uh, but it was, to me, it was like Ramli, but in a store. Mm. Okay, they oh, the only American franchise they had was Burger King, and mm-hmm. it was in the airport. Yeah, so it's definitely not accessible. So we went in there. Um, we thought we could we could change the scene and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, introduce them to this wave three mm-hmm. or third wave uh, burgers. But you can't do that when they have not experienced the second wave. There's True. no step up. You cannot, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Um, and we tried. We tried to, to run the business. We've tried selling pork. In fact, ironically, uh, when we tried to sell pork there, and we thought it would do great because everyone eats pork yeah. there, they didn't want to buy it. They're like, oh, pork is a cheap meat. We eat it every mm, other day. Why would I want to eat it. a cheap pork burger? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of uh, mistakes that we made. Uh, we went in there too too eager because we had a strong partner there, but ah, that's they didn't okay. understand the burger market. Mm. They were selling bubble tea um, there, and they had like a 15 cha- uh, store chain, mm-hmm. uh, and they were doing really well there. But it was it was it wasn't that everything that they did right with the bubble tea. Um, we were able to copy and paste, mm-hmm. and that was where the struggle was. So basically, you just happened to come across a guy who was enthusiastic about the, our yes, yeah, here, and yeah. wanted to bring it to yes. Cambodia. Um, to be fair, though, I would argue that the burger culture is very strong in any other Southeast Asian country then. You know, for sure, Bangkok, like the F&B is just way light years ahead. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam, definitely. Uh, there's definitely... I see a lot of Vietnam uh, burger... Local, Vietnam there's a ton of... I mean, second wave, full out there. Okay. Uh, I mean, McDonald's came only when I was just leaving Vietnam for the first... It was like the first time McDonald's did an international expansion. When, when was this? Uh, when I left, uh, 2013, 2014. Okay. Around that time, right? And so I was like the first time I did an expansion in 12 years. Um, 
But even before that, they had Burger King for a long time. And even before that, Lotteria has been there for ages. Yeah, right. The whole Yum brand has been there. So second wave, really there. So um, I think Vietnam, definitely strong. Uh, Bangkok, of course, obviously, they, they have it. I, I don't know about the other two countries. I would imagine American being such a strong influence in the Philippines, probably there. Um, so I've been to Philippines, uh, no, sorry, uh, Vietnam. And uh, if I have to compare both countries, it's... it's Cambodia is still a far cry from where. Oh yeah, so far. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that's where the difference. Was. Yeah. So, would you be looking to expand into these other countries then, or? So, um, if I have to talk about expansion plans, uh, there is a plan to expand across Malaysia uh, this ah, year and next sense. year. However, that has been oh, okay. uh, slowed down, slow down bit, because of that. You know, thanks to where we are right now, but yeah. uh, that plan is still ongoing. So, after we conquer, you know, quote unquote conquer. Peninsula. Uh, Peninsula. <laughs> yeah. um, Sarawak. In 2021, <laughs> 2022. Uh, then 2023 and 2024, uh, we have an interest to go into Indonesia and China. Oh wow! Why specifically those two? Okay. Yes, because we felt that it was the same effort going to Singapore or anywhere else. But if you go into Singapore, at most I can have four hours. Yeah, right? yeah. Versus and very high Indonesia, cost. Very high cost, and they're all high cost. Yeah, right. Uh, That's but, true. Yeah, yeah. If I go to Indonesia, I, there's a potential for it. But I feel if you go thousands of stores. Yeah, if you go to a tier two, tier three city in Indonesia or. China, man, the amount of foot traffic is just insane. Like, like in Indonesia, like duck rice guy is probably driving like a, I don't know a Bentley or something, and send his kids abroad because he only sells half duck rice half a day. It's just so much cash they're making, yeah. right? So, I mean, I think for FMB it makes sense. I think the biggest B two C company, sorry, the biggest companies in Indonesia are all B two C because infrastructure is lacking and food is probably one of the most accessible. Yeah. Um, well, it's, yeah. it's in the plans. I we yeah. have we have people who are interested that we're in the talks with. But again, it's still very far off. Mm-hmm. But the most, um, the to me, to to be considered successful uh, in terms of the burger business is yeah. to head back to the states and actually have yes, burger in the states. In the states, I think it would do well because we see a lot the rise of Asian food in in places like New York, yes. San Francisco, yes. because yes. people are starting to adapt to yes. to those, you know. Um, more herbs, more spices, right? So yeah. I think Burger Lab having um, that uh, burger as as a medium to carry those flavors, yes, yes. I think would be perfect. I think it would do well, and I would really encourage you. Uh, I, I guess, uh, do you have any finance plans for that, or like how, how would you go about expanding with that? I it out. I'm just putting it out there. So far, okay. I've, yeah. what I've realized is I just put it out there. All the right. Universe returns. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I know people who are investors, and if not, I will try to find a way to get you money to make this happen because I, I love the brand, and I think you're right. It, it, you know, like I said, it's very similar to how you could scale like Shake Shack. I think you got the right product, definitely product market fit, and you're you're right for all these other markets that are opening up, highlighting the Southeast Asian flavors, and it's started as you know inspired by something from the west but really became something in its own which, yeah. which is and i think an amazing to go story. back there and say hey you know this is a gift back yes right yeah it's a tribute back right um so i want to go a little bit into the product development process how do you break down what is good food and what is bad right because i know that part of it is the science and fast iteration which you got from like lean method and you know being engineers and being you know you have to track your experimentation but when we were cooking pizzas together Right. My, my pizza was a little bit too crispy on the bottom for you, but you'd be like, no. So you would say, you know, pizza lab has to be softer. So that's you, right? Yeah. So then how do you know, like between, you know, the, the experimentation, the rigid part versus this is Randy and people will like what I want, right? So <laughs> what, how do you break that down? What is good and bad in your process in developing these products? All right. I think we can, we can uh, take this to 
early days of Burger Lab and where we are right now. So yeah. early days of Burger Lab, we we basically um, did whatever I liked. Yeah. And things that I, I dreamed of or things that I saw online. And, you know, we would just mash things up together. Mm-hmm. But the idea has always been this, the same, which is to create products that when people take a bite out of, they would have that smile. They would go like, what? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we don't do weird things for the sake of doing weird things. We, we, we do weird things for the sake of um, challenging people's perception of what can be done, what can't be done. Mm. Uh, but for every, just like, you know, for every successful business you see, there's a thousand failures out there. Yeah. Right? Same goes for every success, successful burger. You see, there's yeah. a lot of weird stuff that we had to eat and swallow <laughs> and suffer from it. Um, so that was the early days. But when we did those things, there were a lot of um, hesitant, well, there, there were a lot of hesitancy, right? That we didn't know if people would buy it or not. Yeah. But over the years, as we continue to sell what we did, continue to sell the products that we, we, we churned out, and, and there were some failures, there were some that were well-received, we, I can say, you know, we have an idea of what people are looking for. And when I set my R&D team right now to, to, to go about doing something, I'll be like, okay, you need these two things in the burger. I know it will sell. Now, you need to find something to balance it out. Mm. And that's usually how we go about right? putting the theme forward and then uh, repackaging it, tweaking all the small, small um, um, nuances to, to make it a, a, a superior product. Uh, but one thing that really stood out to me at one point of, of our journey uh, was someone who was running, uh, what's this place called? It's in Melbourne. It's, it's called Kitchen or is it called? It's, it's a hipster place, right? Mm-hmm. I said, and they wanted to host us in, in Melbourne. You just described all of hips, uh, all Hawker. of Melbourne. I think HWKR. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah it's <laughs> all, all very similar. But anyway, she, she said, hey, you know, uh, one thing that I realized what you guys do and what they do well uh, was that we anchor and pivot. And it wasn't something that I realized up until she mentioned it. Mm. And I thought, hell, that that is a very good concept to go with. Yeah. The reason why a lot of the stuff that we do work well is because we will always have a flavor that is very relatable, something that we the have core. all the time, yeah. the core. And then you put a twist to it. Yeah. Right. Anchor and twist or anchor and pivot. Yeah. Right. Um, so you have anchor flavor, give it a twist. You most likely have people that will go like, Oh wow. Yeah. You know, so it's not difficult to say, I want to make a Korean burger. Kimchi should be the yes, core. Correct. So what is the twist? Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I would say, uh, kimchi goes well with meat and mm. it should have a, a more earthy marinade. Yeah. Right. So if I am to put something that is Malaysian, right, that's the twist. Korean plus Malaysian. And our twist is always not of the same genre. It will always be something a little bit mm-hmm. off. Um, maybe I would do, okay, this one I wouldn't do, uh, uh, a Malaysian twist. Oh, I can. I can do a copy or mayo. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that'll be very interesting. It will go well. I can assure you, this will most likely go well. Yeah, so copy o is um, uh, it's basically just uh, yeah. black coffee. Yeah, black coffee, but it's yeah. like using uh, local kind, kind of like local beans from yes, the region, basically, yes. yeah. and cooked with margarine. Yeah, and it's a very different rolls. flavor of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I I think that will work well because yeah. if you think about it, coffee rub stick is not unheard of. Yeah, right. Um, and if I I sweeten it a little bit with kimchi. Um, which is something that I, I, in my head, if I go to a Korean uh, restaurant, I would not hate it. Yeah. 
I think it will work. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thought process. Yes, yeah, and okay, then okay. we'll go one round and go like, oh yeah, this is actually okay. Then we, we balance the flavor from And that. then you kind of just put it out there to test. Yes. And then it's kind of a feedback loop. So like, I guess for like the, the pizza example, you, you knew that you prefer this pizza, but of course it has to go through the process of experimentation and validation. And then it becomes the product. But then also, like you said, it becomes core and then you twist it a bit. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I really like that, that kind of uh, framework because that's exactly also what Amazing Graves has done. Also what's made them successful. But there's a huge caveat to that. Getting to core. It's not fucking easy at all. <laughs> it's a painful journey. Product market fit's not easy. Um, it's like you said in your early day of your journey, like how you had to really build up to 10 sessions of different pop-up burgers to figure out this is what's good. And even from there, it had to evolve even further, mm-hmm. right? It's always perfecting your art and pushing it and then getting to that core. And once you have that, then scaling that core, but then, then you could probably do the twist. Because I think if someone's going to hear this concept, they're going to be like, okay, I, this is my core and they don't really understand the product market fit. And they're just going to keep twisting, twisting and just twist until, until they die, right? So I think that's maybe the caveat. But for us, thankfully, the brand, uh, although when we say Burger Lab, we wanted to be a... We wanted to say that our burger, our our business was experimental. Yeah. Not so much our burgers. Yeah. But because people started the asking philosophy. for, hey, you know, your lab, you should have like really funky flavors. Yeah. And that kind of drove us into that direction as well. Yeah. So if you're called uh, basic burgers or, or honest burgers or you know straight straight up burgers, yeah. Um, if you sell something like a blue cheese and sambal patai burger, yeah. Unfortunately, that that might not fly. Right? <laughs> yeah, correct. So you got to know what your brand stands for and what your market expects of you as correct, well. Correct, correct. So, so understand your customers as well. And speaking of branding, um, you know, in, in, in my research and stalking you, I saw on YouTube, you followed a few branding uh, videos. So yep. I was kind of curious, what, what is your approach been to branding? I think your branding has been really strong. It's worked out with the, your initial target demographic kind of sticks. So how do you approach branding and how, how do you go about making it happen? I think at the end of the day, what Burger Lab does well is that we never used the platform as a uh, sorry I wouldn't say we never used um, we generally don't use the platform as a business platform uh, we always see it as hey we're just talking to friends mm. uh, because when we first started the, the, the Facebook page we didn't understand what the social etiquette of running a Facebook page was. Mm. Uh, although we saw a lot of big corporations, you know, the, the, the Facebook page was very clean, very, um, um, you know, there, there was a rule book that you know that they were following. But we've, we didn't understand any of that. And when we first posted, we posted as we did on our personal Facebook. Yeah. And I think it was through that process that we accidentally found that, hey, people resonated with that. They were talking more to us. They were mm. replying our questions. Right. And we just kind of carry on with that. Say, and, and that's the messaging that we have. Talk to the customers as if they are our, they are already our friends. Mm-hmm. Although there are a lot of new, uh, Burger Lab fans that hop on board yeah. and might have joined us, you know, recently that might not catch that. And they do expect a, a more uh, professional tone. And sometimes mm-hmm. we get called out, off. you know, yeah. you guys are not professional at all. Yeah, but yeah. that's all, who we've been all this while. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at how recently, I think there's uh, this GSC um, hero, right? Mm. Uh, are you familiar with, uh, hello, cannot? Are you familiar with that? No. Okay, so you're out of the loop. Uh, I am so, under a rock these days. So. <laughs> okay. So the cinemas have just recently opened since uh, COVID, uh, since RMCO, right? Yeah. And, um, 
they are telling people, hey, you know, you gotta sit one seat apart from yeah. each other. Oh yeah, okay, okay. And then yeah, people yeah. were like, hey, you know what? I, I I I sit in the same car as my girlfriend, you know, or my wife. Why can't we sit next to each other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, there was just a, a whole list of FAQ that people would ask. Yeah. And they just wrote an answer. Hello, cannot. <laughs> and whatever it was, it resonated with people. Yeah. And this whoever the admin was deserves a raise because. Everyone started commenting and it's like, oh, that's hilarious and whatnot. And then they started poking fun at uh, GSC in a good way. And then the answer is always hello cannot. It became a meme yeah. on its own. They sold thousands of t-shirts oh, that wow, said really? hello cannot. Right? And this Other is, brands yeah. started picking up on it yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. If, 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 even our friends from Inside Scoop, they had a t-shirt that say, uh, you had me at hello cannot. Mm, okay. Right? It's, it's crazy. It's a phenomenon that, that and this that, is, it's weird because it's coming from a movie theater that's really old and people, but think, it's not, it's no longer. Yeah. Right now, people see it as hip, young. Yes, correct. And they don't just keep it on their Facebook page. Yeah. If anyone else copies it, right, they'll go there and catch out them. Mm-hmm. Right? They'll go there and disturb them. So yeah. recently there was, uh, I think a drive-in uh, movie theater that just yeah. opened up yeah. and uh, they were saying something about how, oh, now you don't have to sit next to each other mm-hmm. right? Okay, because okay. they were poking fun yeah, at GSC yeah, yeah, yeah. and GSC commented at the bottom, right? Something yeah. along the line of hello cannot or something along the line of, you know, uh, you better hope you don't get monoxide yeah. poisoning or whatever, yeah. right? But people loved it. In fact, yeah. we did something similar. We posted on regular Facebook saying, um, um, you can't do this, right? Because uh, the, the COVID cases were, were increasing and we say hey yeah. guys you gotta be careful and whatnot. Uh, and what's that saying again right yeah. and then we tagged GSC mm-hmm. admin and he, he replied at the bottom his one reply had more likes <laughs> than my post and we're talking about in the thousands yeah it's insane that's very so, viral yeah. yeah so my point here is that I think um, people have always liked the fact that when brands do not look like soulless corporate yeah, entities having, having an authentic voice, right? Yes, and that's where we yeah. come in, always sounding like there is someone behind. And essentially, what, what I'm hearing then, your approach to branding is not so much top down framework, follow this, this, and this. It's really bottom up organic, uh, growing it over time. Of course, probably polishing and tightening as you go through a process, but being true to yourself and uh, being a human, I guess, like you said, yeah. which is what we just talked about earlier. Yeah. So, because you, the you, brand has always been about the people. Yeah. And that social media yeah. should tie in as well a lot of times you know the the social media posts are like super professional and whatnot but then when you go in there it's a fun environment yeah it doesn't jive correct right? correct i see what you mean so and i guess um that's that's it's, it's, it's you know that's one of your challenges then would be to like like we talked earlier like you you have all these great ideas and it's coming from you now you've got to maintain that and keep it through the organization and how to scale it as you probably start to go to other countries and maintain that right that's a big challenge. I'm yeah. not figured out yet. But listen, listen to more Danny Meyer. Read more Howard Schultz. It's I think it's there. You okay. Know? And okay. I think you're going to get it once you start doing the expansion. And I think you're going to do fine. Um, so my last few questions. Deep down, you know, especially with related to the Good or Great Food Alliance, right? I think you know you you said earlier you just want to hang out with friends, have good experience, get discounts by having this group of F and B entrepreneurs, right? But I think deep down you really wanted to build a food empire. Is that true? No. No. What is a f- well? I-, I wanted to build my own food empire, okay. not necessarily involving. Them. Okay, not, inv- not involving them. Yeah. Okay. Um, why but, do you? Why do you shy away from saying this then? Like you know, of building a food empire. Yeah. I don't know. I I I, I think that sounds evil. You know, <laughs> you know, one of the things that really made me like Google at one point uh, was that they, their, their 
motto or their their I think it was their motto. It says don't be evil. Mm. Although you know it's yeah, evil yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the fact that you know one of uh, your uh, company's motto is to not be evil. Yeah. And an empire, unfortunately, at this point in time, does sound evil. Very yeah. you know um, capitalistic. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. let's 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 rebrand it then. What what can you say to you know ha- to have a very genuine ambition but not being afraid to shy away from it? So one thing, one word that I really like, uh, and I think it's a, a little bit overused nowadays, but I, I really like the idea of uh, community, mm. right? And what we can do is have having multiple clusters of communities, <laughs> uh, because mm. every single restaurant, no matter how big the organization is, every single restaurant is a single unit that belongs to that. To that community, to 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 that neighborhood, to that mm. suburban neighborhood. At least that's how I see it, right? And it shouldn't be t- that context shouldn't be taken away because it is some kind of um, um, big multi corporate no company. Yeah. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, what I want to build is it's just clusters of community where while there is directive coming down from the top, but this individual shops or, or, or burger labs are alive and and um their their own individual unique mm. has its own flavor yeah right yeah yeah so i i, I because if you say if it's an empire it sounds like everything is uniform everything is different uh, everything is is it is of the same voice i don't like that idea so, 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 how, so i guess the challenge would be would be how to make a scalable community that has a cohesive core but still at the same time has its own flavor, which is actually very much representative of what Southeast Asia is, if you think about it, right? Yes. And it, I think it will be a challenge because, you know, when you scale, you're thinking about uniformity and process. But I think as long as you have that core, maybe like we talked about core and twist, it's exactly that, but with a community. So if you could go to another country, you have your core, but you still twist, but then it's still, everyone recognizes the branding as it being burger, yeah. my burger lab. I think at the end of the day for us, one thing that we've focused a lot on is our mission, our promises, our values, and yes. these things will never change, yeah. right? And we also realize that individual um, captains or individual store managers will have different understanding of it, and that's yeah. fine, right? Yeah. Um, and through the understanding of it, they practice different managing styles, different way to reach out to the community, yeah. and that's fine. I think it doesn't. If you want everything to be, you know, of a certain mold. Um, I, I don't think that's the burger lab yeah. that we want to have, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's not just burger lab, it's my burger lab. When I say my burger lab, it's not me, Renise. It's people saying my. Yeah. Every individual yes, that correct. says it is theirs. And yeah. I might be building on, on a, a dream that, that might not hold water, you know, when, when it scales beyond a certain size. But I think the journey is there. And yeah. if along the way it self destructs, then. So be it. Yeah. Right. That's we we tried. We tried, we tried get, yeah. getting and there. You, and you stay true to what you believe and what you stand for. Right? And if no one has tried it before, then let us be the first. Yeah. I think this is such a, a great place and sentiment to to end the conversation. But I, I want to throw in one last pivot, I guess. Um <laughs> just to mix it up. Yep. What is one of the hardest conversations you ever had to have and how do you approach hard conversations? Oh, I, I suck at this. I, I still have one hard conversation I haven't had yet uh, with one of one of my partner. Mm. Um, oh, hopefully not breaking it here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, we're, we're we're not. I mean, he knows it's coming. Okay, okay. Um, but this is something that us as entrepreneurs have to face. Yes. Um, I'm not the only one because 
I, I'm a part of this group called uh, EO uh, uh, Entrepreneur Organi- Organization, mm. um, and I've, I've, I've a few friends there who are fellow entrepreneurs in India. Some third year, fifth year, ten year of the is business. this the one you pay membership fee or yes, okay. Yes. Um, and at one point, you realize that the same team that got you here might not be the same team that mm. gets you there. It's and how do you have hard. that? Conversation and sometimes it is having that conversation that turns that team into the next yes, into correct. into into them stepping up. Yeah. Um, so I've been really accustomed to growing people I hire, but I have the biggest challenge in growing co-founders. Mm. And sometimes I put myself on the blame on whether I've I should have been harder in it to say, hey, I'm going for this class, let's go together. Because yeah. over the years I had to uh, step up myself. Um, by, by educating myself, yeah. by growing myself, yeah. uh, but I felt that it was not something that I could force someone else to do it. I I think you know what I've learned across almost close to a decade in building companies across Southeast Asia is that uh, this is a lot more common than you probably think, and um, I understand the need to kind of self attribute some blame. So to a degree, you're, there, there is a contribution something from your side, I'm sure. Now, to the degree of how much, you know, that's going to be between you and him and the truth. It's going to be your your projection, his projection, and then there's the truth, of right? Course. But the truth of the matter is like, and this is going to be my opinion probably, is that uh, you can bring the horse to the water, but you can't force him to drink. Because I've seen this so many times. And the fact of the matter is that a different, it depends how fast you're accelerating or growing. It depends on the nature of the business. Is it VC-backed? Is it not? Is it organic? Is it traditional? That also changes the pace, right, of how you can grow. But, you know, at some point in time, and this is as old as time is from the first business, that at some point your business partner will not be able to keep up, right? So it's, and it's just, you know, the question questioning if, you know, uh, and I guess this is a really good question because it's important to communicate and be honest and open with each other just to have a good conversation. And he may find out in the process that really it's not for him. It's not what he really wanted, right? Uh, or maybe he's just not ready because people are at different paces and at different times. So um, there's no hard, you know, there's no hard right answer. I can't give you what that is. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a yeah. process, like you said. But to, to be fair, to be more fair to yourself, you know, it's just I don't think you could have done anything different probably that would have changed an outcome if he's just not ready. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking for someone that I can bounce bigger ideas with together. And that's where the struggle is uh, with me and and having that hard conversation. So that would be a hard conversation that I never had. Mm. Other than that, I've I've kept things pretty simple with with most of my staff. Um, So I've never really had to have a hard conversation. Except for terminating one or two person. Uh, I feel bad about it, but unfortunately it's because they did fuck up and based on company policy yeah. you can't there's yeah. no two ways around it I guess it's a t- testament to your culture and the type the way you've trained and maybe interact with them allows you to have a relationship with them where you could actually make it easier to have almost any conversation probably right so I guess for you where other people might feel it's hard conversation the reality it's it's um, what you make of it and it's probably not as difficult even though it's still kind of maybe shitty yeah an outcome. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely yeah. a lot of shitty conversations yeah. out there. Yeah. But you, 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 it, you, it's got to be laid out. It's, it's part of the job and, and you do it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that, that last pivot. Um, I think it's a perfect place to end. Thank you for your time. It was a great conversation and hopefully we can have you on as a repeat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's right. a pleasure. And I love the view. Yes. <laughs> hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. 
If you learned something or enjoyed this, please share it with your friends. I love getting feedback from new people, and that always helps when you share it. If you have any questions for myself or Renyi, feel free to drop a note at entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast. For me, I definitely learned a lot talking to Renyi. Renyi is super genuine and has strong principles that have carried him to opening more than six outlets along with multiple food concepts and businesses. At the heart of it are his values on hospitality and tweaking them every day for improvements and culture building. You too, right now, can impact someone's day and create meaningful value just by keeping hospitality principles top of mind, whether you're a boss, a customer service rep, an investor, or just that barista making coffee. I would also urge any investors in the F&B space to reach out to Renyi. Their burgers are amazing, and I know it will do well anywhere there's a strong burger culture. As usual, see you guys back here for next week's episode.